0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Acts 21. We're going to start in verse 16. As you're turning there, um, I'd like to give you just a little context for what happened last week. Last week was Easter. We dipped our toes in Acts 21, verses 1 through about 15. And while we were looking through that text, we identified the suffering that Paul was experiencing on his way to Jerusalem. We identified how that path was not a singular path that he walked. He was actually following the path that Christ had walked on the way to Jerusalem. And we talked about how this is actually a well-worn path that Paul in his letters to the early churches encourages all of us to walk. And he identifies this concept of um, death and new life being something that is uh, prominent uh, and present when we first get saved, the moment we get saved, but it's also the theme, the motif of our life as we continue to follow Jesus. So as we pick up today in Acts 21, Paul is walking this path towards Jerusalem, knowing that what he will find in Jerusalem is suffering. But I don't know if he actually understood the, the, the entirety of where the suffering was going to be coming from, because I'm going to be honest with you today. What we're going to read really, really breaks my heart. And it breaks my heart because what we see in Acts 21 and 22 is not the church, the Jerusalem church that we see in Acts 2 and Acts 3. And a lot of times in church, we talk about, man, we need to get back to the early church. We just, look, 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 if we could just look at what it was like for the early church, if we could just kind of share our own belongings, get to a place where we're kind of looking out for one another. That, that's the Jerusalem church at the beginning of Acts. But make no mistake, that's not the Jerusalem church by the end of Acts. And that's what we have to face today. That when Paul shows up in Jerusalem, he is ready for the persecution that is coming at the hands of the Gentiles coming at the hands of the Jews, the Romans, but there is tremendous opposition coming his way from the church, Christians. So let's get into that today. Let's look at Acts 16, we're, uh, 21, we're gonna start in verse 16. It says, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So he's leaving Caesarea. He's leaving the house of Philip the evangelist and his daughters who prophesy. And he's heading into Jerusalem and he stays at this house of this guy named Manasseh of Cyprus, who is an early disciple. So they're, they're hanging out at his house. Verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. All right, things are going well so far. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So Paul comes in, he meets the brothers. That that word brothers is actually a Greek word that represents brothers and sisters. It's family language. So he's greeted by the brothers and sisters in in Jerusalem. They all say, man, Paul, it's so good to see you. We can't wait to hear what God's been up to on these journeys. Next day, he goes and meets James, who is the brother of Jesus. And he's kind of the head of the Jerusalem church at the time. And he meets with the elders, verse 19, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And boy, there was a lot. We've just read about all the things that God's been doing in these churches in Ephesus and Corinth and Thessalonica, how the Bereans were so hungry to go home and study and then come back and say, all right, we want to get saved. And when they heard it, verse 20, they glorified God, they praised God, the Lord for all the things that God had been doing among the Gentiles. But then they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're still pretty zealous for the law. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So you've got thousands of new believers in the Jerusalem church and all of them are zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Well, What are we gonna do about that? Well, here's an idea, James. How about you teach them correctly? How about you teach them sound doctrine? How about you correct their gossip? That's not what he offers. He says, what then is to be done? We've got this idea. We know that they certainly have heard you have come. So this is what we want you to do. Do therefore what we tell you. We've got four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. Ouch. I don't think they read Galatians. (laughs) But as for the Gentiles who have believed, you know, the thing we talked about at the Council of Jerusalem, we sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual morality. So we've already encouraged that the Gentiles, in order to live peaceably among these Jewish believers, that they need to. They need to observe these things. They don't have to observe the whole law, but they should observe some of these things so they can live in community with their brothers. So then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them. And he went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled And the offering presented for each one of them. Okay, now let's pause because there's a lot of Jewish stuff going on that is making this very confusing for us Gentiles to follow. So let's just summarize what's going on here. So Paul, after he spent almost 10 years on the mission field, preaching to the Gentiles, planting churches, and traveling back to most of these churches two and three times, Seeing God work miraculously. He also, we learned two weeks ago, that one of the things he was also doing beyond just planting these churches and teaching these people about Jesus, was that he was taking up an offering for the Jerusalem church. And he brought a delegation with him. So you're thinking, I mean, there's probably 10 to 12 guys, 14 guys following him with this offering. So it's not just Paul. It's Paul and like he's stacked like 14 guys, young men deep. And they're all, they've got their offering from, hey, I'm from Berea. And and we brought $10,000 to support Jerusalem church. I don't know if if that's how much it was, but just hypothetically. He's like, I'm, I'm so-and-so from Thessalonica. We brought this $5,000 offering to help the Jerusalem church. Oh, but praise God. So Paul goes into the, the elders and he's like, hey, the Lord has been doing amazing things to the Gentiles and here, look at this. They followed me back to give an offering. Well, that is amazing. Thank you, Paul. Praise Jesus. That's wonderful. But we have an issue. We've got a real gossip problem here at the Jerusalem church. People can't stop talking about all the things you're doing wrong. So we've devised a plan to address this issue. So here's what we'd like you to do. We've got, thank you, you can put the offering right over there. <laughs> here's what we'd like you to do. We, we would like you to, we've got four guys here who are about to go under a vow. And we would like you to associate yourself with this vow. Now. Pause. Paul doesn't have any issue with vows. We learned a couple chapters ago that he actually went under a vow where he shaved his head. I'll talk about that, what that vow was in a minute. He has no issue observing Jewish law. He is Jewish, but he understands that Christ has fulfilled all of it and there is no longer a need in order to obey the law in order to be righteous before God. That's not necessary. Now, if you want to celebrate Passover, because you understand the fullness of what that means, that that Passover, that, you know, passing over the home, that the blood being spread over the doorpost. Man, that innocent lamb that was slain means now the firstborn in your family is not gonna be taken because the firstborn of God's family is already because Jesus is the firstborn. When you're kind of rolling around all the ideas of Passover, you're like, man, that's good. I'd like to, I, I, I'd like to celebrate Passover just to kind of experience the full, like, you want to do that? Fine, go celebrate Passover. Do it, enjoy it. But don't make that a requirement for your salvation and start putting the weight of that on other people for requiring them to perform it in order to be right before God. That's not a necessary part of salvation. Salvation's in faith alone. So Paul understands this. But there's an issue in the Jerusalem church because apparently they're not teaching this because thousands of Jewish Christians are walking around taking issue with Paul on his stance on this. And so what's the solution? We got these four guys who are about to do an outward display of something and we'd love for you to associate with these guys so that whoever sees it, hopefully their issues will be satisfied because they'll see something you're doing on the outside and they'll say, oh well, Maybe what I heard about him wasn't true. Now, for a moment, let's pause and let's dissect what's actually happening here when it comes to the vow. This vow, it's not stated here, but if we look in the Old Testament, um, there's a, um, I think it's like Numbers chapter six, there's a vow that Moses, uh, God tells Moses to tell the people that, uh, that individuals can take in order to set themselves apart for a period of time to be completely fixed in on God and nothing else. It's called a Nazarite vow, right? Now the Nazarite vow was a vow where you would go and you would present yourself to the temple and you would say, here, I'm going to uh, take this vow for a certain period of time, I'm gonna a predetermined amount of time, and what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna shave my head. And once I shave my head, I'm now under the vow and, and, current, and, and everyone can see, because I shaved my head, that I'm under a vow. There's something different about you. Like, where'd your hair go? You look different. But it starts with the hair, but it goes to other things too. So while you're under the vow, you can't touch any strong drink. No drinking any alcohol, not even touching it. You can't touch anything dead. And that includes if your dad passes away under the vow, you don't go to the funeral. Samson was under this vow. Samuel was under this vow. A lot of people associate Jesus with this vow because he was from Nazareth, but it's not the same thing because this is a Nazarite vow, not the same thing. That's why you see so many pictures of Jesus with long hair. I got bad news. He probably didn't have long hair. It was not a common thing for Jewish men to run around with long hair. Maybe the fronts. I just blew your mind. You're like, hold on a second, wait. <laughs> hold on. I've been watching The Chosen and <laughs> <laughs> Look, if you want to picture Jesus with long hair, I'm 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 not I'm not saying you're a heretic. I'm just saying that most likely if you if you're looking at the time period, like there weren't a lot of men running around with long hair. Okay? Probably Jesus didn't have long hair. Probably had a whatever. Okay. <laughs> So the vow was you shave your head and you abstain from these things. At the end of the vow, when it's done, you go to the temple and you present yourself to the priest that the, the, um, the vow is now over and you have to bring a certain amount of offerings. You have to bring a male lamb. You have to bring a young female lamb, an in, in ewe. You have to bring a grain offering. Uh, and you also have to bring, what was the last thing you had to bring? Um, I want to get this right. You had to bring one other thing. Oh, a drink offering. So there's four things that you have to include in the offering. Once you present these things and the sacrifices are made, the priest then shaves your head again And the hair that is grown from the period that you shaved at the beginning of the vow to the end, that is burned up in the offering as well. And you walk away and the vow is complete. So what's happening here is the guys in Jerusalem, the elders are saying, Paul, here's what we want you to do. We've got four guys who are under this vow. They've already shaved their heads. They're halfway through the vow. They're about to complete the vow. What we would like you to do is we would like you to go down to the temple you're gonna have to purify yourself because according to Jewish law, when you start hanging around Gentiles like you have for the past 10 years, you have to wash all that Gentile off of you. You gotta go to the the temple, you gotta go clean, you gotta wash all that off of you. Uh, And that's a seven day ritual. But once you finish the seven day ritual, what we'd love for you to do is to associate yourself with these guys to publicly display display that you are supporting these guys who are in this vow. We'd love for you to purchase all of the offering material that they're gonna need so that everyone sees that you are a pious Jewish man. Now that was expensive. We're talking male lambs, female lambs, lots of bowls of cereal, drink offerings. This was an expensive thing for Paul to do. And what did he do? Verse 26, it says that he did it. He went and he purified himself and he paid for the offering of these four men. Now, let's take what's happening here and overlay it with some of the things that Paul has written on these previous missionary journeys. He probably wrote Galatians, sometimes around his second missionary journey, He spends a great deal of time in Galatians 1 talking about how he had to confront Peter to his face because he was eating at a Jewish table making the Gentile or the Hellenistic uh, Jews feel bad about themselves. In Galatians chapter 3, uh, 23 through 26, Galatians chapter 5, he essentially rips the church apart for believing another gospel and convincing themselves that there were things that they had to do on top of adding to their salvation things that were rooted in Jewish law. So you've got one hand Paul telling the church in Galatia, um, this stuff is not necessary anymore. But now you have him in verse 26, listening to the elders and following through with an association with a bunch of guys who were going through a vow. How do we reconcile this? We reconcile it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, where Paul says, To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. All right, Paul, you're confusing me now. (laughs) Because like either we don't have to do the thing or we've got to do the thing. And Paul says, if you're thinking about the thing, you're missing the whole point. The point is never the thing. The point is being, being willing to sacrifice your own freedoms in order to communicate a larger message. To me, it doesn't matter if I have to pay for some guy's vow or I have to spend seven days doing this. If it by any chance gets me the ability to be able to preach the gospel to somebody who couldn't hear it because they thought they knew something about me, I will absolutely pay that price. I will look more Jewish in order to reach somebody that's Jewish in order to hear the gospel. Now, that teaches us so much about resolving conflict in the local church, because I think that there is value in living a life that shuts the mouth of accusations. If you're sitting in a situation where somebody um, can't hear the gospel presentation because of some way that you're living or some decisions you've made or something you've said publicly or the, the way that you're living, I think that the Bible would encourage us to be able to surrender some of those things in order to win the right to be able to preach the gospel to somebody. There is value in saying, I'm going to deny myself these freedoms that I have in Christ in order to eliminate the hurdle that you would have to jump over in order to hear the gospel message. It's incredibly difficult to be disciplined enough like we are here in order to uh, operate the budget the way we do so that we start the year with all the money we need in the account. It's very easy throughout the year to, when needs pop up, well, let's just give to that. Let's go over whatever we set aside. No, we have to be disciplined with that. We will live above repro, we will set boundaries for ourselves so that we don't cross over just so that we can eliminate the issue that you might have in hearing the gospel and being a part of this church when it comes to things like money. We know that's an issue, so we'll do extra work in order to eliminate that ever being an issue. That is a gospel thing. But there's this other thing that I think is going unspoken here and it is the value found in going ahead and addressing misconceptions head on. I want to know why this church wasn't doing the work of shutting the gospel gossip before Paul ever showed up to preach the gospel. How has the leadership gotten to the place where we started in Acts, where God is doing tremendous things, and now when Paul shows up to continue talking about tremendous things, the only issue brought up is, hey, we got a couple thousand people who take issue with circumcision. They can't get over the fact that you're telling them not to listen to Moses. And Paul's like, I never said that. I didn't tell them not to listen to Moses. Yeah, 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 yeah. But okay, so, so here's what we're going to we're, we're not going to like call everyone together and have a church service and let you speak on this issue. We're not going to, could you write some letters and we can kind of circulate. We know that you've been into writing letters. You've been doing this a lot. Maybe you could write one to the Jerusalem church and we just kind of address some of these issues. No, no. What we'd like you to do is have some shallow outward representation that you are affiliate with the stuff that we kind of like around here. Ah, I don't know if I like that. And I don't think Paul liked it either. I think he did it because he was submitting to the leadership in the church of Jerusalem, because he trusted that they knew their sheep the best. But I don't think that this is what Paul would have decided to do if the decision was in his hands. And the reason why I say that is because of what happens next. He follows the process and it doesn't matter. He does the outward stuff so that everyone can see he's a good little Jewish guy and he associates with all these people. It doesn't matter, it doesn't work. A mob starts anyway. Go to verse 27. This is when the seven days were completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. This is not like good, like lay hands on him. This is the bad lay hands on him, like around his neck. Now, this this is not the Jewish believers. These are Jews from Asia. So the region he had just been preaching in. So Jews probably from around the Ephesus region. They laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, even he brought Gentiles, excuse me, he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. So they're standing up around the temple, and now they're accusing him of more things he didn't do, which was bring Greeks into the temple. They had previously seen him with Trophimus, uh, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. He didn't. He respected the boundaries they had set up that Gentiles don't go into the temple, even though it didn't matter anymore. The, te- the veil had been ripped. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut and as they were seeking to kill him, word came out of the tribune, of the cohort, that all Jerusalem was in a a kerfuffle. They were in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. So now Rome's involved. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Oh man. So they're they're literally, they're beating the mess out of him. He's bleeding, his face is swollen. When the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, he inquired who he was and what he had done because some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some were another and nobody could figure out what was going on. He could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people were crying out, away with him. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? (laughs) Bloody lip. Wanna? Can I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then? (laughs) Oh man. (laughs) You know Greek? I thought you were the Egyptian guy who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out in the wilderness. Paul's like what? No, I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language. This is probably Aramaic. He said, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Now, before we go into his defense, I want us to kind of dissect what's happening here the plan that had been put in place in order to communicate to everyone that Paul was very Jewish did not work. So when the plan didn't work, what was Paul's instinct? To talk directly to the people. No more outward expressions that associate me with something. Let me share with you from my own mouth who I am and what I'm about. Let me get face-to-face, face. let me, let me, he- I want you to hear my voice about what this, what, what is going on. Now, in the middle of the confusion, everyone's like, what, wait, you want to talk? Do you know, Greece? how do you even, I thought you were the Egyptian. What is, what is going on here? Who, what, who did they think He was. Well, if you go back to uh, Josephus, who was a first century Jewish writer and a historian, he outlines an event that took place. Apparently there were a lot of revolutionaries after the time of Jesus. And one of them was this Egyptian guy. He came up from Egypt. And he started this guild of assassins, if you will. And he was against the Roman Empire. And one of the ways that he would, uh, he would combat the Roman Empire is he would get followers behind him, he guys behind him. He'd say, hey, 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 you know, we're going to overthrow Rome. Here's how we're going to do it. Anytime there's a public gathering, I want you to show up and I want you to bring your knife. And they're like, okay, I mean, you've got me so far. What do I do next? When the crowds gather, I want you to pull out your knife and I just want you to start stabbing people. We're going to create total mayhem. And this assassin guild rose to power. And this Egyptian guy was the head of it. And Josephus says that it culminated after a couple of these gatherings where these assassins would pull out knives and just start stabbing people in public. It culminated with this Egyptian guy leading the 4,000 of his leaders up to the Mount of Olives and said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand up here on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem and I want you to just wait until the walls of Jerusalem fall because God's with us, he's on our team and he's gonna crumble the walls around Jerusalem and at that point, Rome's not gonna have a defense. God's gonna show up and we're gonna lead a charge into the city and conquer. So you've got 4,000 guys all standing around with their knives just waiting for the walls to fall. And guess who doesn't show up on the day of the meeting? The Egyptian guy. (laughs) Classic, classic. So he doesn't show up, he disappears, and the Roman Roman soldiers show up, and they arrest all 4,000 of the assassins. But everyone's on high alert because they don't know where the Egyptian guy went. So now they think Paul is this Egyptian guy. So there's this big confusion about who he is and what he wants, He's been told by the leadership in the uh, Jewish Jerusalem church, if if you could just be more Jewish, then that would satisfy things. That doesn't satisfy things. People are still upset. So what does Paul go to? What is his way of reconciling miscommunication and gossip and lies that is thriving in the early church in Jerusalem and that is fueling this mob of Jewish uh, folks from Asia? the same thing you always do when you're confronted with lies. You speak the truth. There is no better medicine to lies than the truth. And I'm not just talking about like saying the truth about facts, I'm, say, I'm talking about saying the truth about what God has done specifically in your life. There are these things that God says are true about Him and these things that are true about Him have worked themselves out in my life specifically and let me tell you what that looks like and that is called a testimony. And a testimony is one of the greatest ways that we use to combat the lies of the enemy. Because you can't argue with somebody who has been transformed. In the book of Revelation, we're told that the end-time saints overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So what is Paul's testimony? Now, now, I debated back and forth. It's like, is this important to read? Because we already read it. We know what happened to him. But I I don't want to skip a man sharing his testimony because I think it's important for us to understand what he thought was important to help us connect the dots in our life to understand what we need to think is important. Because often in our daily lives, what we think is important is how fast we got to work because we sped or how we got out of that ticket or, 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 or how we craftily uh, manipulated the situation to get more things for ourselves rather than less things for ourselves. And he's like, none of that stuff, that, that's not important. You need to be more acquainted with the specifics of God transforming your life and less acquainted of the amazing things that you've accomplished in your life. So listen to the way that Paul talks about his life transformation. He stands up and he shares his testimony. Verse two, he says, when they heard he was addressing them in Hebrew, they became even more quiet. He said, guys, I am a Jew. All right, that's a way to start, right? I'm a Jew just like you. I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. I was brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Now remember, he's saying this as he's bleeding and swollen and puffy And he says, I I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. And as the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear witness, from them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. You guys think that you are something special because you're, you're, like you're abusing the, no, 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 that was me. I started this. I was doing this before any of you thought to do this. I had letters to go to other towns to do this. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus around noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? and I, I answered, who, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And so I said, well, what, what, do, I, what do I do, Lord? And the Lord said, rise and go to Damascus. And there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I had to be led by the hand by those who were with me until I got to Damascus. And this one guy named Ananias, listen how he describes Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. He's answering the issues that he knows this crowd's going to have. Well, Ananias is probably a Greek. No, no, no. He was a Jewish guy and he was well spoken of by the rest of the Jewish community. He came to me standing there and you know what he said? He said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight. And then he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on on his name. And then I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I'm imprisoned and beaten, those who believed in you. When the blood of Stephen, your witnesses, was being shed, I, I was standing there approving of it and watching over the garments of those who killed him. But God said to me, Go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, and up to this point, they listened. But then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Now on the surface, this looks like Paul is hopelessly preaching to an angry mob. And at some level, that is what's happening here. But to me, this is a case study for the world we live in because every single day, it's a new controversy. We don't have street corners. There's mobs on street corners sometimes, but by and large, most of the mobs live online. And they're fueled by people with YouTube channels, and Twitter accounts with large followers. And they raise these issues and accusations, and they stir up these mobs and my question is, how do we respond to the ever-growing deception and controversy? If all our lives are about is identifying the things that are wrong, what time do we have left is there to talk about things that are right? And I said when we started this section that Paul's way of dealing with this was to address the lies with truth, and I believe that that is what we're supposed to learn from this section, that in the midst of any of the controversy, that in the midst of the tribulations. One of the best ways for us as Christians to handle ourselves is to consistently just speak the truth. Now listen, there is some value found in apologetics and really kind of working truth out with people who are genuinely hungry and interested in knowledge, but I'll be honest with you, most people, they're not interested in knowledge. They're not interested in transformation. They're interested in silencing you. They're interested in a public display of putting you in your place. That's why when all these things happen, there's always some, somebody in the corner with a phone running to post that video online. So if we've got a situation here that within the local church, there is an issue of gossip and slander. And this transfers over into the public sphere of people spreading gossip and slander. If you start off at the book, at the beginning of the book of Acts, and you see a church that's thriving and beautiful and wonderful, and you go to the end of Acts and you see a church that is filled with deception and gossip, my question is, how do we get there and how do we work through that? How did a church get so far? And if a church can get so far there, and we see this happening outside of the church, like how do we how do we live as Christians in a culture where churches have a habit of getting on a trajectory of going from thriving and healthy to self-centered and full of gossip? How do, we, how do we thrive, how do we live in a culture that loves feeding into that stuff and pitting us against one another? What do we do? How do we live? Well, I can tell you what you're not, what what is, what is not helpful and what is not gonna be fruitful. Spending your time finding outward displays of you associating with the right people and not the wrong people. There is some value in living your life in a way where accusations can't stick, but that still doesn't stop people from throwing accusations. So how should we live in a way that shuts the voice of gossip and lying in the church and in the public sphere. We cling tightly to the truth. And here's what I mean by that. How does a church go from thriving to filled with gossip? It's because they stopped talking to one another face to face. How do I know this? Because I see it happening In churches today. It's always the same thing. What happens is when you start getting a community together and things are going really well, you start working out a shorthand among people so that you can talk less. How do I know you're still in? Well, I do these like these surface level outside checks. Have you been at church lately? All right, then you're probably doing pretty good. When we know that that's not a metric for measuring whether someone's healthy or not. You being able to show up to a place does not communicate what's actually transpiring to you on the inside, because you can show up every single week and be filled with dead men's bones. So I go, well, I wonder how that person's doing. Well, I mean, they're singing during worship, must be okay. They keep coming to small group every week, so I guess they're all right. That's how this happens. How does gossip and lying spread and ruin the inside of a church? It happens when we start making a decision to trust these shallow outward expressions of where we stand on things and how we're doing rather than the hard work of sitting down with somebody over coffee and saying, how are you doing? No, 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 how are you doing? How is your daughter doing? How are you handling losing your father? Oh that well, oh, that's hard. That takes a lot of time. Right? But if you do those things you are less likely to go to a place where you start believing and spreading gossip about things because you don't have the time. Like, look, if someone came to me, one of the business administrators here at the church is a guy named Chad Wilson. This dude, he sings up here on stage, he was singing here last week, his wife is Christy. This guy, he, in my mind, he probably has the highest level of credibility uh, and character of any person I've ever met on planet Earth. The dude is unmovable. He will not sway when it comes to things that would erode his character. He avoids it like the plague. And if someone were to come to me and say, hey, uh, (laughs) I heard Chad Wilson, he's got sticky fingers and he's been stealing money from Red Hills Church, I would laugh in your face. Because I have spent more time with that man and I know his character and the kind of person he is and that supersedes any accusations that come. But the only way that works is if I do the work of really knowing the people in my life. And so what is this about? What is this conversation about today? What is this sir, what am I? where am I trying to go with Acts 21 and 22? I'm trying to get us to have open eyes to the value of living in close community where we genuinely know what's happening in each other's lives. Because the opposite of that is a bunch of lying and hearsay and gossip. If you don't know people in your life and, and are breaking bread with them and sharing life with them, then all you have to go off of is the shallow outward expressions of what you think this person is doing. And that's when we start falling into the trap of like, oh, well, I don't know if that person is doing really good. Why? Well, I just kind of haven't, well, this, these three shallow outward. Have you talked to them? No, not yet. Well, maybe, maybe you should start there. Maybe pick up the phone and, and give them a call. Maybe take them out to lunch. You look at the life of Jesus and he spent three years walking with these guys, living with them, sharing his life with them. And somehow we think that that's a a model that's, uh, well, maybe it's reproducible, but not necessarily because as as soon as we start growing within the context of church and community, man, it's just like that stuff, we can't keep up with it, it's too much. Well, if we're looking at the Jerusalem church and we're looking at the mobs that are created, there is a tendency for human beings to want to believe the worst in each other. And when I'm looking at Paul, the way he handles that is he says, look, I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking to you about ceremonial cleansings. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time talking to you about, let's parse it out on the, the Hebrew and Greek, on Moses and the law. Let me just tell you what God's been doing in my life. I think that's a great example for us to be able to model in our lives. What should be most valuable to us? What should we spend most of our time doing? Sharing our lives with one another. What did the early church fall into? Sharing their lives with gossip and hearsay. If you wanna talk about the kind of stuff that ruins a movement of God, this is top of the list. And why am I making a big deal out of this? Because I've been watching what God's been doing in our church and it fills me with such joy. I, I had a conversation with somebody this past week, and we were talking about, like, is there, what, what's the Bible way of describing what God's doing? Because I, I don't want to use, like, you know, catchphrases of, uh, you know, oh man, it just, it feels like revival, or it's just like, it's just so good, like, like God, you know, like, like God's really there. Well, God's always there. Like, I, let's not just, I don't want to, how do we talk about what God is doing here in a way that is biblical and not cheap. And I, I don't know that I found it. I don't know if we just say, man, like the spirit of God is filling his people and he's transforming them. I, I don't know if, you know, like they just, they really treasure Jesus or, or the people are just filled with the joy of the Lord. I, I don't know that I've really got my hands around the words we could use to describe what's happening here, but, but in all of my energy of, of, of thinking through biblically, how do we talk about all the amazing thing God's doing? There's this little thought in the back of my head, seen this happen before. You know the great awakening it's not still happening. There's these moments and these movements where God is working and transforming people and then it doesn't happen anymore. Why? Why? Well there's lots of reasons but I can tell you one of the top of the list. We stop sharing our lives with each other. That's top of the list. That's what stops the move of God. We start assuming things about one another rather than going and talking to one another. We start expecting people to jump these hurdles that we have created in our minds that communicate whether you are good or not good, when that that hurdle is nowhere in scripture. And so my plea for us today is for you to join me in praying for two things. Lord, how do we treasure and talk about the amazing things that you're doing here in the lives of, of the people here at this church? And how do we safeguard ourselves from falling into the same trap that people biblically fell into when they stopped living their lives with one another? When they started treating stuff and outward expressions of what's going on in here as more valuable than sitting down and saying, I wanna share my life with you. Tell me what is Jesus showing you today? I don't care, I don't have time for what Jesus is showing you. I just wanna stand at the corner of the church and just, did you raise your hands? Good, and then you're okay. Then you probably don't need any of my attention. Oh man, that is a recipe for disaster. That is pumping the gas towards ending a move of God. Are you, are you following me? So as I, I look at this today, I, I, I see my heart breaks because I see a different church than I saw at the beginning of Acts. And what I want more than anything is for the church, the church, this church, the church in Tallahassee, the church today, the church that the global church that's alive now, is for us to stop tripping over that same root of gossip and slander and believing the worst, rather than going to the person and saying, "Hey, um, are you okay? Can can I can I pray for you? Can I can you come over to my house and?" and make me, and, and can, I, can I cook you dinner? I would love to just spend time with you and just hear what's going on in your life. Like that seems like not a very spiritual thing, but that translates into intangibles that build God's kingdom. Amen? So that's where I want us to wrestle. To. I, I, there's no resolution to it, And I want you to leave with that little bit of tension. I want you to leave, I don't don't know if I felt, I just kind of feel unsettled. I want you to feel that unsettling. Because if we're not consciously aware that we are in control of how far this thing continues to go, we at any point can say, you know what God, thanks for all of the work in the lives of your people. I'm gonna take it from here and I'm going to start assuming things about people, and I'm going to start shutting down the work of God because I'm going to build these little things that people have to measure up to in my own life. We have the ability to stop this, and I don't want that to happen. I want us to be open-handed, and I want us more than anything to continue sharing our lives with one another. So it's one of those splashes of cold water on the face. Lord, wake us up. Lord, wake us up to the stuff that we can start putting our hands on and, and and just ruining the beautiful work that you're doing. So on that, let's, let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you wanna hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.